Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Just Keep Riding, a podcast for riders by riders to keep you riding. I'm Marshall. I'm Will. And with us this week, you almost messed up your line. And with us this week is uh, author Daniel Jose Older. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, I usually pass it off to Will really quick to ask the first question. We kind of usually ask the same question for most of our guests. So uh, go ahead, Will. So our first question we do ask for everyone, and it's uh, describe your career in three words. And they could be completely unrelated. It's like not like a sentence. It's just like, how would you describe your career in three words? That's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, Wow. Okay. Uh, Fun, roguish, and uh, iconic. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about each of those words for a minute. Uh, Let's do the first word, fun. Why would you say it's fun? Or what made you think of that word? I think um, it's, it's, I think all those words, uh, what I, ideally they apply to both the career and the page, right? So I both aspire to and actually do really enjoy writing and and the process of writing and even publishing, although it can be hell. Uh, I do love it in a lot of ways. And um, and overall, I just feel like I'm living my best life. I've, I've always wanted to tell stories on some level and I get to do that. And that's um, that's really fun. <laughs> Okay, and roguish. I'm really excited to see what this one is about. <laughs> I mean, ro- <laughs> need I say more? <laughs> um, I think there's a combination of elements at play with the word roguish. It's that um, I think in some ways you have to have an element of, I will, I will speak for myself, I have to have an element of roguishness to what I do because we live in, are we swearing? Can we swear on this? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yep. you can. The fucked yeah. up world we live in. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's really fucked up. It really is. If we're being honest, then we, we in order to succeed at being honest um, about this world as writers, which is what our job is, literally, our, our one job, um, I think there has to be an element of roguishness. I think we have to be able to make people uncomfortable who are always comfortable and then experience what that's like, um, <laughs> the blowback and everything else. And, you know, whether that's, again, I think that applies on the page and in how we move in our career. Uh, both of which are part of the writing journey, right? So if my if the, the work I do within my books can make people who never got to feel at home in a book before feel at home, then I'm doing my job. If they can make people who always get to feel at home a little bit nervous and uncomfortable sometimes, I'm also doing my job. And if as I move through publishing, you know, I make publishing houses like a little edgy, but also a lot of money, then I'm also doing my job. You know, that's, that's really what I'm here to do is like tell great stories, uh, change the world for the better, um, make story as a whole and publishing it more specifically more inclusive and um you know open up this world to be bigger and better i love it um and what about iconic i mean as, as <laughs> now you know i mean i, I think uh, <laughs> like the work i do with star wars um has already kind of like taken on this because of the high republic um just this this level to it that's really gigantic and um i'm really proud of that and um and then you know the work i do on my own it's not star wars um i I've, i really hope to um leave a legacy behind that includes both my own work and the people that i've inspired and I think that's um, that's the essence of 
of being an icon. I'm not saying I am an icon necessarily. Um, what I'm saying is like the idea of iconicness is about um, that giganticness that is not just about the self, but about, you know, like the self and others and the, the wholeness, the, the totality of like who we are, you know, as people. And um, I just hope that um, like so many people have found room you know, like under their wings for me. And I hope that my wings are big enough to hold other people and lift them up to. Awesome. That's awesome. So um, I want to talk about you did your MFA at Antioch, correct? Yes. And, and it was really about um, their program is a lot about uh, social justice as well within writing. And I've heard you speak and I've heard you like I've read some interviews with you and you talk about you know the importance of mentors and specifically you said uh black women really mentored you and took you under your wing and I believe it was um and I, I I'm sorry if I say her name Tanariv Do yeah Tanariv Do I have her book actually right here <laughs> I, I love that book um, yeah, I love <laughs> and of how influential you know her mentorship uh, was. So can you kind of talk about the importance of mentoring, you know, upcoming writers and, you know, how important it was for you to have mentors? Yeah, um, it was Tanana Do. It continues to be Tanana Do. I'm Sheree Renee Thomas. Even before her was someone who I took a class with at the Frederick Douglass Creative Arts Center in Manhattan uh, back when I was very, very new and um, still just putting together what it meant to be a writer. Uh, she really took me under her wing too. Um, Jacqueline Woodson has been really um, generous with me in many ways. So it's like, a, it's like so many people, um, it's a community, you know? And I think that's really what it comes back to is that like, you're either in a community or you're not. Um, and that has less to do with like who you're friends with and more to do with how you carry yourself. Cause I think there is kind of like a, a understanding from the outside of the writer's world that, that, that it's just about clicks so like people just like pushing each other forward without them earning it or something i don't know there's like weird ideas about writing and that does happen um in different ways and sometimes those look similar like from the outside you can see a community and you can see a click or a bunch of people who are just trying to get on get get use each other to get higher up the ladder and sometimes they'll look alike um but the way that you feel when you're moving and the way that you make decisions when you're moving in a community is almost totally opposite from the way you're doing it when you're just trying to get ahead and have yes people around you, you know? And, um, you know, a community is honest with itself and with each other, with the members inside of it. And so mentorship doesn't just look like people being like, yeah, keep going, you're doing great, when you're not. Mentorship looks like being able to be like, you know, have difficult conversations and be like, this might not be the way, you know, this, you might need to try this, try that. And, and also hard, real conversations about race and publishing and how messy and complicated that is. Look, the hardest thing about being a writer is the decisions, like decision fatigue in a way, in terms of publishing. Um, writing books is the hardest thing about being a writer, but navigating your publishing career is a constant um, there's just ongoing, like really complicated decisions. And a lot of them are tiny but they, they have huge repercussions and ramifications and, and which hills to, you know, really stand on and draw blood. Like those are really hard questions and they're different for every writer. They're different throughout of the career of every writer. And to not have, like you need people to talk to about that. People who are more or less in the same kind of realm as you in terms of success or where you're at in terms of how many books you put out, people who've done way more than you and people who are just starting out. 
Like that's a community. Um, it's intergenerational in that sense. And, um, you know, that's what it's, that's what it's made up of. So, you know, to, to be on the receiving end of that also kind of means you're on the giving end of that. doesn't mean you can do it all the time because you have to manage your own time and be, and it, and it has to come from an authentic place, right? You can't just do it out of guilt or be like, well, mm-hmm. someone lifted me up, so I'm going to go lift somebody else up. Like it, it's a natural relationship. Mentorship, yes, like there are um, mentorships in college experiences and MFA experiences that are sort of set, but the 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 real relationship beyond that, like when I have with Tanana Reeve, you know, and, and others, like that's something that just evolves naturally and you can't really force it. So that makes it a little bit complicated and and it's just the truth that I that I know about it. So part of the um I was reading something else and I think when I saw you speak, you also talked about this, that you went into um ju- juvenile detention centers. Um and you know, taught kids to write. And it struck a chord with me because I actually wasn't one when I was a child. Mm. And um, I would always say um, it's not a place that kids actually belong in. And um, yeah, you mentioned that and that really touched me. So what for you, what was it like to go in there and then have these kids be able to give them a space to express themselves? Yeah. And, and I, I do want to say like, I've done it a number of times. It's, um, but it's always something I like, I would still consider myself kind of a tourist in that work. It's not something that I've made a career out of doing or do like to the degree that a lot of folks who that's like their life's work. Um, but every time I've done it, it has been profoundly effective. It, it has affected me profoundly. Um, I hope it's affected the students, um, but you don't know, you know, um, and every every time, like literally every single time, like I can pull up every time I've gone in um, it from my memory immediately because each time is such a just soul crushing experience. Um, and and not all that sounds like it's all negative, and it's not. It's also a very inspiring experience because in the midst of all of that soul crushing, what you meet are real live people who have real live you know fires inside them who still are just desperate to learn and thrive, and be in community and do all the things that like kids everywhere do. And that's what's it's like simultaneously heartbreaking and like holy shit, like the human spirit is so much bigger than a wall and so much bigger than all of these dungeons that they build around it. Um, and it's still really hard to just be there and hold the space for that. Um, I, I remember very clearly just uh, a recent or one of the more recent ones that I did, it was a couple of years ago. Um, and it was like, the, they, they had left the TV on in the rec room where I was teaching. And even though the, the person organizing the program had given them very specific instructions not to because she knew it would be a distraction. And the kids were like staring at the TV sort of like intentionally. And it was a really small group, you know, but it was in the middle of everything going on. And I just watched their gaze like slowly start to work its way over to me as I was talking, like the, like the TV got less and less interesting. And, um, and I was just giving my spiel about writing, you know, I wasn't doing anything big or fireworky or performative. I was just talking about being a writer. And, um, to me, it just speaks to like, yes, it's a, it's the, it's the power of the human spirit and it's also the power of story. And I think there's just something that is deeply compelling to all of us about story, uh, no matter where we are, or who we are, and no matter what th- that medium might be, you know, music or art or what, but either way, it still comes back to story. And I think writing is one of the most pure distilled forms of story. 
And that's why I love it so much. So, you know, working with kids to tell their own stories and young people to tell their own stories when they're in a place that's trying to deny them their very essence of humanity. Um, that, that is that is life changing work, even when you just do it a couple of times. Right. Do you feel that uh, like those experiences, did that really inform you when, say, you were writing like Shadow Shaper and really like developing those um, characters and that um you know, just the language. Cause I feel like that's one of the things that I love about that series. Like it feels like back when I was a kid of how we talked and, and just the, the essence of actually living here in New York and growing up here. Definitely. It was that, um, and basically all the work combined that I've done with young people, whether it's, um, in different prisons or or correctional facilities or correctional facilities, (laughs) like just terrible word Mm -hmm. for that, you know, cause like, that's not really what it's about. So why do they call it that? It's a lie. But anyway, um, community organizations. Uh, I taught theater and did different kind of organizing work um, around Brooklyn uh, for a number of years. So yeah, all those relationships and, and experiences really did go into it. You know, I think the most important thing about being a writer is listening and being able to listen. And um, dialogue is the most obvious kind of form of that, where it's like, that's kind of the, that's like the first stage, I guess, in some ways, because it's surface in a way. Um, Maybe it's deceptively obvious because like good dialogue, the tricky thing with dialogue is that it has to, you have to be able to draw from what you hear and really like capture the the voice, but you still also have to put it into service of story and move the story forward. If you're trying to tell a story that moves forward. And that's where I think it it requires a lot of strategy and cleverness, but um, it's still at the base of it, it's still about listening. And if you can't listen, you know, what's even the point? Why are you even writing, right? Like, and, and then I think beyond that, it's listening to yourself, listening more deeply to people beyond just the superficial, and I use the word superficial in quotation marks, level of dialogue, um, and, and really hearing what they're saying. And I think that's where we get into the more kind of complicated levels of like writing people who aren't you and all that other stuff. If you can't listen, just give up now. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't want to tell anybody give up, but that's where your work, that's where the work needs to happen is in listening. Um, and, and again, like you're listening to yourself. For sure. Yeah. When you were writing uh, Sierra specifically um, for Shadow Shaper, were you nervous about writing from the perspective of an Afro-Latina? Um, yes. I think a better word for it is like, I just, I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, I think the way it played out in my mind was like, okay, I'm writing this book, you know, that's a very like Latinx book in a time when there are very few Latin Latinx books out in the world. And of those, even fewer of them are fantasy. So it stands a good chance of however it does in the world, it's going to be one of the books that is like the, you know, Latinx fantasy of the year, because there's just not going to be a lot because there weren't a lot at that time. Thank God there's more now. Um, and I was like, you know, if I if I kind of leave it vague, then the girl is going to be coded as like sort of like that light, you know, me. Um, and that's the default for, for Latinos. You know, it's like a light brown or whatever. And pub- the publishing will do, that mainstream publishing and media and everything else. This is like, oh, it's a Latinx kid. Or it's, a, those, it's a little Latina girl. Cool. Make her like brownish, whatever, um, vaguely Latin, Latina. And, you know, I just really felt like that's not 
that's a that's a form of, of anti-blackness that happens in erasure and um so it was important to me to you know take that seriously and then it was also like yeah okay if you're gonna make this character afro-latina it has to be dealt with that like this community is not one big happy family and that it is quite fractured and quite fucked up on a number of levels and um you know people uh, people would be like why is that you know tia rosa character in there and it's like because she's real you know that's the most mm-hmm. That's the most that, that moment where she talks about the bottom of the foot and everything is like you know so that that's the most quoted back to me as something that people have actually heard line of the whole book and it's by people who are Asian you know like South American African like people from all over this planet have heard that exact phrasing of anti-blackness which lets you know how global a phenomenon it is and how fucked up it is and how so many of us have that in our families and like. It would have been very easy to tell a story about like a Latino community in Brooklyn that was like, everything is great, but that would have been a lie. And I wasn't comfortable doing that. So, you know, I, I felt like this is the way to go. Um, and, and again, I think it comes back to responsibility and, and taking it seriously. Now you've been, um, that's great. That's, that's, I love listening to you talk about um, Shadow Shaper a lot. Um, you. you were quoted um, that you came to fuck things up. Right. When it came to like writing. Right. Um, and like it goes back to like your earlier response about like publishing and your career and responsibility. But did you come in like when you were thinking about your career that like you wanted to write adult, you wanted to write middle grade, you wanted to write YA or did it happen like organically because that's the way the stories came? Um, yeah, it was more organic. Um, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I was just going to try a lot of different things. Um, just cause that's the kind of artist I've always been. Um, when I was more doing music, it, the music was kind of across the board. I would try lots of different styles and play with things. And, um, I just find that to be like really interesting voice wise, even like, I love it like on an album, you know, when like there'll be a track that's like fully symphonic there'll be a track that's just like a guy and a guitar there'll be a track that's like metal and somehow it forms a unified whole and it works you know i I always really gravitate towards that degree of like uh just voice complexity and using lots of different sounds in different ways you know so i figured that that would be true it wasn't a grand strategy it was more like well let me go in and see what's what and shadow shaper was the first thing i wrote I didn't have a strong sense of like the categories yet. I kind of learned as I went in those first couple of years. Um, the first draft of Shadow Shaper is very like borderline middle grade because I was kind of just modeling it off Harry Potter, which is pretty much middle grade for the first three books, you know. And, and those those categories were really forming at that time. They were formed, but they were kind of in motion. They're always in motion. Um, and then I was like, started writing short stories. And I mean, the honest truth is there's not really much of a market for short stories that are young adult or children's at all. So that was part of it too. But I was also just like, I, I figured, I knew I was going to write adult shit too. And it really was just like whatever the story wants is what I'm going to do. Cool. So I want to um, talk about star Wars um, a little bit, cause all of us here are star Wars fans um, and are obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> I'm wearing mine. So I want to talk about. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. I wore this shirt on purpose. I have I have probably 200 Star Wars shirts, but I'm like, wow. I just I have way too many T-shirts. Let's not get into that. But that's I, I I you know I knew the Star Wars stuff was going to come up at some point, so that's why I'm wearing right. this shirt. You were ready. That's and, good. And, and we'll, we'll beat me to the punch, but go ahead, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Um, I'll probably so have a follow up. <laughs> 
you wrote the Lando Calrissian and Han Solo book. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, first, what was that like being asked to do a Star Wars novel? Amazing. I, 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 I just feel like I don't ever have good answers to these questions because it's exactly as amazing as you imagine it to be. It's like, it's just, it was amazing. Like I was blown away by it. You know, at that point I was still really early on in my career. Um, I think I put out, I guess two or three books. I had like two or three books come out in the same year, really in quick succession. So everything happened kind of really fast. Um, and I'd done the short story for them and I did it with a very clear like and it like idea that like I really want to write a novel. And I'm pretty sure I told them, I'm pretty sure my agent told them too. And we were, we were both just like, so you know, if a novel comes down the pipeline, <laughs> we're your guy. And a novel came down the pipeline. So I don't think I think it happened much faster than I expected it to. And that was amazing. I think I had to actively restrain myself from like immediately emailing them back and being like, yes. <laughs> Because I have an agent and that's his job to be like, wait, you know, no, and hold on, not no, but let's get the price right and all that. So I let him do the uh, negotiation as a, as a good little client. And uh, it was just truly thrilling. And then the experience of it, it was really fun. Um, it was really, really fun. I got to go out there. That was the first time I went out to Lucasfilm, um, which was a, an absolute thrill. And they're just all really, really cool people. I can honestly tell you story group is a, is a dream to work with. Like it's, it's just great. Yeah. The story group is, I've, I've never interacted with them, but you know, I've been in star Wars gaming communities for, for a long time. And it's like everybody I talk to, you know, the dream, anybody who writes, obviously the dream is to right. one day write a star Wars novel. Right. Um, so I don't know if this is what Will was going to say next, but as far as just staying on Lucasfilm here for just a minute, now that the high Republic is starting to unfold, um, how was that? This ex was that, was that experience with the writer's room and all that much different than your early experience with the Lando Han novel. I'm just curious because I know that the, the high Republic is something a lot of us are looking forward to because this is a whole era of yeah. unexplored star Wars. Awesome. That yeah. really has no limits. Right. So exactly. like, what was that creation process like? Cause I mean, I've, I, you know, your name is next to all these other folks sitting yeah. around trying to create this stuff and yep. all of us aspiring writers, like what if I was in that room? So if you could speak to that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, it is, it is very different because it is, you're like always thinking much more meta and micro at the same time. And that's great, actually. That's really what's cool about it. So with like a Han and Lando like one-off, you know, you're you're bouncing it kind of off the movie um, in terms of just like, and then you're always thinking in terms of the larger galaxy and the whole saga and all that. Sure, but you're only going to be able to throw like a little bone here, or there, like an Easter egg around mm -hmm. it, you know, whatever at the best, you know, um, and which is cool. Like that's fine for what it is. But this is yes, this being what it is, and this being this huge interconnected project, and that we're all really involved on the larger story beat level and on the individual project level, and the individual projects have like really micro connections that are much deeper. What's really cool about it is that they're not just Easter eggs; they're actually like quite complicated inter connected moments that really matter, you know, yeah. and some Easter eggs matter, but you know, it's not just to be like, Hey, it's not, not pure fan service is what you're saying. It's not fan service. Right. It's like part of the storytelling and it's, it, we're, we're able to do that because it's happening simultaneously. Right. So it's right. not like 40 years later, you're like, Oh, let's, <laughs> you know, which is a cool thing. I'm not knocking that at all. It's just right. like, Hey, you can't, there's certain, there's different limitations. Mm -hmm. And so with this, like, you know, as Cav is writing into the uh, the Rising Storm, rather, 
um, you know, I'm putting other touches on my, um, I'm writing my middle grade, which links into it directly. So we're literally on the phone or on Skype, like being like, okay, there's this and then that. And then this guy's going to come in here. Does that work? Bouncing drafts off each other, you know, or scenes or whatever. Yeah. And with characters like grabbing each other's characters and then bouncing off like the dialogue is just something they would say, you know, so it's very like live time interconnectivity, which is, I don't think it's been done quite this way to my knowledge, like with a, with a group of novels and comics that we're doing, it's, it feels brand new. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's just really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. We're, now you, I can't wait for that, for uh, all that stuff to come down. You. <laughs> you yeah. I got I, the comic book. I been re I've just read it and it's amazing. And I'm super excited about the middle grade um, you. novel you're writing. So Lula is one of the characters that you specifically created. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to, can you talk about that like the energy behind creating her and what was important to you when you were creating new characters? Yeah, well with Lula um you know I knew I had a team that I wanted to put together. It was like the Beckett moment in Solo that didn't actually make it into the movie when he's like I'm putting together a team. Right. <laughs> you know, that's also what happened with Mike Siglane, the head of publishing when he brought us together. Basically he was like I'm putting together a team. And then I went off and was like all right, to my imagination I was like I'm putting together a team. And um I, I you know with Lula it's interesting because most characters you kind of have a certain impulse towards them and that's like the initial spark of creation and Lula it's been very like more kind of level. It's not like, it's not like with a lot of characters have like a peak where you're like, Oh, it's this. You'll have like a really clear image. Like with Reza in um, um, the Bone Street room, right? Like I'm very clearly like, I actually saw someone um, who looked exactly like what she looks like. And I was like, that's Reza. Love that my character, head, like, everything way. happened from there. Right. <laughs> it's just like, and she was driving like a, you know, like a, a one of those like um, black taxis and she had fingerless gloves and she was cool as shit. <laughs> and she just lit a cigarette in front of me when I was on break one day. I forgot about that. Anyway. So from there it was like really easy. Lula someone that formed much more gradually. And even like, as I write, as I was writing to her in the first issue, I was kind of learning who she was, who she is. And then seeing Harvey's Harvey Tony Bow's artwork of her kind of like showed me a little more. But the main thing with Lula was like I just wanted her to be someone who was so deeply entrenched in that Jedi life, like everyone is, because you're taken as a kid, right? You're little, you're a toddler basically when you enter into your Jedi training. Um, but she's also like really enthusiastic about it, and she's like, "This is my shit. I just want to be the best at this." And then part of that was also knowing that I, I had a character coming onto her horizon who was Zine, who was someone who was like totally outside of the Jedi order, brought up to not like the Jedi, to not trust them, to not think that people should use the force and also has the force and how those two things are different, you know, like, um, and how they're contrasted and what tensions that brings up and how they're also just really, you know, good friends and what that could mean. And, um, I, I knew, so I knew those two things were kind of going to be happening simultaneously. And a lot of that was just kind of throwing them up against each other to see what happens. Wow. Now, when you went to Skywalker ranch and like, you know, you're, you're in the writing room and everything. One, I've been to Skywalker ranch a couple of times, actually. Oh, so, really? um, how'd you go there? Yeah. That's so cool. Um, I went, it was a birthday surprise, um, from Carrie. I went with her, um, in 2011. Um, and then I went a couple other times with her to do some press and stuff that Who's they were Carrie? doing at Lucasfilm. Carrie Fisher, Fisher. basically. Oh, I know who Carrie Fisher is. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Carrie Fisher? Yeah. 
That's what he does. Yeah. He works yeah. in hair and makeup. He hasn't told you this, but he uh, right. He did, but I forgot. <laughs> yeah, he drops <laughs> Carrie. Like, wait, who's Carrie? Like, I, in, yeah. <laughs> I tease him about it all the time, uh, Daniel. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, it's fine. Um, it's so, nice. So when, thanks. So when I went up, um, did like, and I got the tour of the Skywalker Ranch. Did you, did you guys get to like tour the whole entire facility and everything? And like, what was that like for you as a fan? No, it was incredible. It was like, I mean, you know, you were there. It's like, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. Um, and I was there as a fan and, and as a creative. And I think like actually as much as I am a life, literally a lifelong fan, um, I think the fandom stuff hit me more at Lucasfilm offices. I'm sure you've been there too, right? In the Presidio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's where yeah. my fandom stuff was on like a thousand because that's where they had, because for me, like one of my happy places with Star Wars is the monsters. And so, you know, ILM being there and then the animation studios, all that stuff, like that's where it really got me. And I, I did at Skywalker Ranch, of course, have like all those fan moments, but it's more that that place is so creatively charged and the energy there is just so good and beautiful and fun and like all this stuff. And like, I, I really just like felt inspired to be there and, and excited to be there and like to be there and working on a project that I got to like, you know, just take part in and, and feel a part of and everything. So that's, those are my, my strongest memories are just being like, like this walk I talked about on the um, panel when we, uh released the first couple novels um just this walk that i took where i just like it was daybreak and like the brainstorming session that i had with myself i felt like the amount of work that i did in that maybe 20 minutes to 45 minute session was worth like a week of work that i do in a regular like it was so concentrated and powerful and i literally just sat down and I just took a walk. I came back to my um, cabin and I just went and knocked out this whole thing. Mm. And it was something I had to present that day. And and even saying that, like, I wasn't nervous about it because it just, it was right there. So that's my memory of the place. That's amazing. Do you, um, were you worried, like, when all of you were creating this? Because there is a uh, certain negativity that also comes with fandom. Um that I think truly is in the minority, but sometimes they feel like they're the loudest voices and it's, yeah, you know, cause it can be harassing. Were you, do you worry about that? Like, um, it's like, worry is the wrong word. Cause it's like, you know, it's going to happen. It's not right. a mystery. You know, like worrying about it implies that there's a possibility it might not happen. <laughs> it's like, I wouldn't call it worried. It's more like I could set my clock to it, you know? Like, right. Well, here yeah. comes the bullshit. And I don't, I don't want to minimalize like how, rank and awful it can truly be because it's it is truly like disgusting um and it is truly much worse for women and especially uh women of color especially especially black women um and that is really fucked up and uh my main concern is like other creators seeing it and 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 it having the effect of like gatekeeping which it's intended to do its intended effect is to make people of color especially like not want to write star wars and you know, my concern is that it's successful at that in any level, um, because I am committed to having more people of color write Star Wars. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's but it, but that also serves to, like, make me louder and more, you know, determined to be victorious in everything I do and, like, kick more ass on every level and, like, not back down on any level and, like, you know. To me, it's in the work, though. Like, the work I do speaks for itself. So I don't really feel the need to, like, mash trolls online. 
um, every once in a while, I feel a desire to, but in terms <laughs> of like, like getting done what I need to get done, my job is to like live my best life, speak my truth and write great stories, you know, in whatever order that comes and like make Star Wars more inclusive. So I'm doing that. So I'm winning. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. It, it worries me um, too, as far as fandoms go, like, like Will said, it, you know, I'm a fan of, you know, multiple different fandoms and it's like, I'm passionate about it, but I, I've never taken it to the point to where I would attack the creator or, um, or, you know, bring, try to bring them down in some way. And so I just, I'm, and I know this happens around, you know, book trilogies and, and authors and stuff in general. And I just, I just wonder, because you said that, I just wonder how you, what's your normal kind of approach to the trolls and the, and the haters just in general. Yeah. I know them. Yeah. Like that's my, my normal approach to it. I mean, there were other times in my life when I would like get a kick out of like, you know, like quote our team and destroying them. And you know, it's fun sometimes. Yeah. But um, mostly I find, I find ignoring them is the way, you know, but I don't begrudge people who feel the need to engage. I just don't want them to do it in my mentions because it gets old quickly. Um, and it, and it does kind of like goad them to keep going. You know what I mean? So sure. my general strategy is to ignore them, but um I do think they have to be addressed, you know what I mean? Like not directly to them, but I think the issue of it, you can't just ignore it. It doesn't go away when you ignore it, right? right. Like the death threats continue, particularly the women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that matters. And I think it has to be dealt with. So I, I actually don't know the answer. You know, there's people like uh, Mickey Kendall Carnithia on Twitter who, who do this work and like know actually strategies that work in dealing with this stuff, you know? And, uh, and I know like Star Wars is, trying to figure out the best ways to do with it. And, you know, that's, I just, that's not, I don't know. I don't know the way to do it (laughs) as a creator. I just know I keep creating and I, and I try to support as best I can, the people that are getting the brunt of it. And I make sure I take care of myself and, and uh, make my social media a safe space as much as possible and tap out when I feel to. And, you know, that's basically what you got to do. Yeah. So uh, talking about like safe space and, you know, everything that we're touching upon, you helped um, in, I think it was 2014, change the World Fantasy Award from not being HP Lovecraft. And you were really like the driving force and it worked. So can you talk about um, like the importance that was for you and like for the community as whole? Because, yeah, it totally needed to be done and what that was like for you. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it just seems self-evident. I I mean, I know why, but it's also just like garbage. Um, And I guess it was like, it's just, it's a time when people are really talking the talk and it just felt like if you're going to talk the talk, like here's how you walk the walk, right? Like it's, it's not enough just to be like, oh, we're all equal, right? But you're still upholding like these racist giants and lionizing them and everything you do. So what are we really talking about? Right. And, and to, to, to kind of tie it back into what we were just talking about, I think an important distinction has to be made. And I only say this because I, I see it getting blurred a lot. And, and there's a huge, there are, there are totally different things. It's like to critique versus like to be a troll, a asshole, abusive, like mm-hmm. trash person, you know, like those are different and they get conflated. Um, and like critique is important. We need to be able to critique and we need to take critique and we need to deal with it. And it's not always easy and there's layers to it. And it, we all have to sometimes topple our idols and it's hard. Um, and that is also being an adult. 
And like, yeah. you know, different people deal with it differently as we have seen many times over. Um, but uh, I know that's just part of growing up. And so, you know, for me, it, I'm not gonna pretend Lovecraft was ever someone I idolized. He was someone I, I read um, like mid-career and I, there's things about his work I like and he's an important racist. And I think it's actually quite easy to hold those two things in the balance and say, there are things about this dude that I liked and learned from and the dude was an important racist that we don't need to make statues of, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's another thing that gets yeah. conflated by the critique of the critique, which I'm using critique in the loosest sense when I say that, but um, the trolling of the critique um, is that they want to sort of make it into like censorship or people being like, oh, no one can ever read Lovecraft. And it's like, you know, if you take what I say on the terms of what I actually said, then we could we could have an interesting conversation. But instead, you want to make up shit that's easier for you to, you know, have a little rally about. And I can't I can't argue with points I didn't make. So y'all are on your own. Right. I actually do really love a a good um, debate, but these folks aren't trying to have one. But the, the bottom line is, you know, like you don't get to call fantasy and science fiction as a community um, a safe place or welcoming to people of color when you hold up a racist to be like the symbol of your, you know, and the epicenter of like your powers. Like that's not how it works. Um, the same is true, you know, across the board. That's why it's so important that the statues are falling, you know, across the country right now. Like that's, that matters. It's important. Just like the whole premise of, literature is that stories and symbols matter. Yeah. So if they matter, then they matter, right? If they're powerful, then they're powerful. If they can save, then they can kill. And uh, that's just a, a level to it that I think people don't want to deal with when it comes to, you know, things they idolize and, and things they worship and, and you know, like the, the just all that. I, I just think it's a, it's a false flag argument that they're constantly having with themselves because then they don't want to deal with what's real. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Sorry, just reminding me, Marshall um, has been doing stuff in his community to change, I was wondering if you were um, going to bring that name. up. Sorry, Marshall. <laughs> I wanted to talk about it because yeah. we've been talking about it because Marshall is like one of the few black people in his town and he's been really having to do a lot of the heavy lifting and explaining to people. And I see the toll that it's taking on him and it, you know, it makes me so angry and that I really wish um, more people who weren't of color would actually step in and also say that this is morally wrong, that this needs to change. And it's just, so we've been trying here at the podcast to, give Marshall love and support <laughs> and to make sure that, you know, he has a, he has a space to really talk about it. And I'm sorry, Marshall, you can talk about it. No, I it, just, I did want to bring it up because it's important. And, but, yeah. and, and I think what Daniel said earlier is, is, is the crux of why you're doing what you're doing. Will is that we have this community and we have this very diverse group of writer friends that, you know, that, that we support. Right. So what Will is alluding to is that I I'm actually live in a, in a town that's named after a Confederate general. Um, I live in Fort Bragg, California. Um, and so I'm on a committee that is trying to Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg. Yes. That motherfucker. Yeah. One of the worst humans. (laughs) Also a bad general. Oh, terrible at everything. He's a terrible general, terrible person. It's horrendous. So his ass beat in Tennessee. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the government is actually, cause there's a Fort Bragg, North Carolina as well, which is a military base that they're right. um, actively trying to change the name of. So the right. short, the short version is, is I got on this committee a little less than a year ago to try to decide whether or not the town should change its name. Right. Um, and so, I mean, we all know what the answer will eventually be, but right. me sitting on a committee as one of the, I'm a, I'm a teacher by the way, in my community and it's yeah. like a very small community. So, you know, I am trying to tell them what my experience is and trying to be like, this is why we should do this. Yet mm -hmm. I'm talking to people with like that own half the town literally, or that have streets named after them that live around the corner from me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. stuff like that. And it's like, and trying to, it's a, it's a constant churning of just trying to communicate. Like it's not, and, and like you said earlier, Daniel, it's not, it somehow becomes about them and it becomes about like, what well don't take my town for me that's my history but at the same time you can't say that and then also say well where are we going to stop taking down you know confederate monuments and it's this whole conversation it's like but you're all saying the same thing like really right. what it what you don't want things to change because you like it the way it is but it's wildly offensive that we're living this way right it is. um it is. so that's it is. that's kind of the, the short version of the whole thing. And then Man, I feel for you. That really <laughs> sucks. Cause like, you know, my situation is very different in, in, with the Lovecraft thing because I literally just put up a um, petition online. Mm. It took me five minutes and, and it, and it, and it blew up. And like, yeah, I, I talked it up a couple of times on Twitter, you know, that's why it cracked me up when like some of the fanboys would jump in my mentions and be like, why are you obsessed with Lovecraft? And I was like, <laughs> it took me five minutes. Like, I didn't, it really wasn't a lot of work I did, you know, <laughs> that's, I'm sorry, dude. But, um, you know, uh, but to sit in the room with the people um, and there were people, you know, I definitely wasn't the only one. People have been calling this out for years. Um, um N.K. Jemison is one of my favorite, like, outspoken people in the sci-fi world and fantasy world who've been really amazing about a lot of stuff with this. But um, but there were also people on the inside doing the work um, who would, like, report back to me mm. and, and be pushing the right buttons on the inside. And, like, that's some of the hardest shit to do. Mm. Um, and, and looking in someone's face and, like, the microaggressions and the excuses and the justifications and the bullshit and, like having to just keep a sort of a straight face and any kind of like diplomacy or demeanor in the midst of that, of someone like literally devaluing your own humanity to mm -hmm. your face is like absolutely soul crushing. And I just, um, I hope you do what you need to do, you know, to heal in the course of it and step away when you, when you can or when you need to, because it requires healing. Yeah. I appreciate that. And like I said, I lean on, I lean on will on those moments for sure. So yeah. <laughs> and my, the rest of my community, my family for sure. But yeah, yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm like I say, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing too. And like, you know, and, and making that happen. I think that's super important. So gives me hope. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. So let's talk about Flood City, your newest um, middle grade novel. Um, how did you come up with the idea of Flood City? So this is actually a book I wrote 10 years ago. Um, I wrote it immediately uh -huh. after, uh, I think I wrote, I wrote Shadow Shaper, I wrote a draft of Shadow Shaper, and then I was on submission, and I didn't have shit else to do. So I wrote uh, some short stories, I took that class with Cherie, and out of that, I pulled one of them and um, turned it into Half Resurrection Blues, and somewhere in there, I was revamping Shadow Shaper pretty massively. I overhauled it, 
and a lot of the mythology changed. And the first draft had a ton of monsters in it and stuff. So I pulled a bunch of them out. And so I had a bunch of monsters kind of laying around that I wasn't sure what to do with, but I knew I wanted to use somewhere. And I had read the Count of Monte Cristo again, late in life. I mean, it was my late twenties or early thirties, but still, um, that's such a foundational text. It was so good and it blew my mind and I loved it. And it was such a, it's such an expansive story. Like it, because it was serialized, like he really, just like goes to town and like um, goes in lots of different directions, but pulls them all together really well. And I found that really inspiring. And I had uh, up to that point written these two books that were very, very uh, not small, but just very tight in terms of their focus. Right. One, one was in first person singular and the other was in very, very close third. Mm. And so I hadn't gotten a chance to really just like explore a wider sense in a world um, so I wanted to do that and, and somehow middle grade really felt like a good way to do that. Just have all these wild, weird characters in this crazy world and ridiculous world and like just sort of turn them loose and see what happened. And, um, and so that's really what I set out to do with Flood City. And then uh, it was, it's definitely Star Wars influence, and, but I also wanted to kind of talk about a moment in, in future history when um, they, they brought up the, it was pretty soon after um, Katrina, and I was thinking about people being left behind. And I was working with the, those kids in Bushwick at that time. And uh, we were doing some theatrical stuff around Katrina. And it was just like the idea that they knew in, in, inherently that they would have, they would were that to happen in New York, that they would be the ones left behind too, was sort of um, simultaneously heartbreaking and a, a big fire underneath me um, in writing that book. I was also thinking about like Cuba and um, where, my, where my people are from and, and the moment like there was this kind of moment after Spanish rule and as the U S was taking over, um, back in 1898, when it must've been like, it must've felt like, Oh my God, we're free from Spain. And then immediately like, Oh shit, we have the U S on our backs, you know, which is the story of like so much of colonialism and, and the conquering. Um, but I, I just wanted to like hold that moment for a minute and think about like what that must've been like. And, and that's kind of what happens in Flint city. There's like these ruling, uh, chemical barons who caused the floods and and then they're being fought off and then this kind of like UN type international intergalactic organization comes in and, and these like really giant blue peacekeepers um, who are just kind of like clumsy and, and terrible um, take over and then they're sort of still dealing with them so it's it's about all those things and I just threw all those things into a pot and stirred it and out came Flood City. It's 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 a it's a great book. I I really really enjoyed it. By the way, um, I what I thought was really interesting in what you just said too is the idea of of who would get left behind in this situation, yeah. you know, and to to know that Flood City is full of uh, brown and black people, people of color. It's like, and they're just struggling trying to make it work, and these right. kids that are so optimistic and trying to make it trying to make it happen for their families. And it was a really, I, I really liked the contrast of, especially towards the end. And I don't want to spoil too much, but especially towards the end where the kids are saying, we can actually do this without them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like we don't actually need them and we can actually come up with a way to survive without them. It was just, I, I, I had my kids in mind when I was reading the book because, um, you know, Will is a very voracious, you know, he reads an insane amount. He's got all your books somewhere near him, I'm sure. Uh, nice. um, but I, I honestly, I like 
I, I, I take recommendations from him often and this book. And, and so when I, when he tells me to read a middle grade book is what I'm saying, or, a, you know, a young adult right. book, I, I, I think of my children cause they're, they mm-hmm. like to read as well. I think they would really identify with these characters who one get to hang out on rocket boots all day and jet around the city, which is badass. But at the same time, like, they don't need the adults really in their life to figure this out. Like the adults are there, but it's, it's a really, um, it's a really epic thing that they are able to do. Um, and, and, and it gives a lot of hope. And I I really, I really enjoyed the book. I really did. That's great. That's, that's great. It touches on two things that I really cared about with this book. One is that like, they're all really different in their, a lot of ways. Right. But they're also like in their interests, yeah. And um, that really, to me, really speaks to like the need to just open up this idea of kind of organized activism. What does it mean to change the world? Right. Like you have a musician. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, you have a, a, a horn player and a drummer and the drummer is also a holographer. And then there's this kid who's like a total zoology nerd. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, I love it. <laughs> put those pieces together yeah. to do something huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and because and at no point is any of them like, oh, that's you don't do like, what are you doing? You know, that's not going to do it. That's not going to change the world. Right. Like they're all just like, Oh cool. You play the horns. Oh, there's iguana goals. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's necessary like, for what we need. You know, it's really, exactly. like, we'll work it out. Like, <laughs> let's just throw it all together. And that's what, look, that's what people have done throughout history for to sure. survive. It's thrown it together and found ways of finding joy and, and music and resistance and, and science, you know, amidst it all. It's a big STEM book for sure. Sure. But also, I, and I, I kept getting pushback on this in uh, the editorial process is that like, they really wanted me to explain where the dad was. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And I, I so the, there is a moment where he, um, Max is just like, I just don't think about it. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's like, people die every day like in this town. You know what I mean? Like he probably got lost at sea. I don't remember what the explanation was, but it just didn't matter. And I, it really, and I didn't, it was like an intuitive thing um, that I really wanted it to be in a happy family structure and, and it not be this huge tragedy that their dad was gone. That's no shade to dads. I have a dad that I love. Yeah. Um, but it just was like the, when I was thinking through the book, like, it wasn't something that I intellectually was like, you know what? They live in this world where probably, you know, people lose parents constantly. Yeah. But um, my brain was like, every time I tried to be like, all right, do I want to, it just felt like. But, it, but, but you're right. And it's not, it wasn't something that, that the, the characters need to be hung up on. Like, right. you know, given, not. yeah. Given the world, it's like, yeah, people are dying all the time. Like you said. And it's like, they are happy even though yeah. they don't have, um, right. that father. And, and it's not that they're like cold hearted to the death of it, you know, like it matters, sure. but it's like, that was some dude he never knew. Right. You know what I mean? So like the family structure in a, in a, in a system where people just aren't around sometimes for good reasons, like yeah. it's going to be different. Like, that's <laughs> what it is. So he just doesn't have that like weight around the idea of fatherhood also because it's a big family, like on flood city, yeah. everyone looks out for each other. It's a community. They, they check in, you know, everyone's, everyone's uncle and aunt and everybody else. And like, that's just how that shit works. So he's yeah. like, he doesn't feel like the lack of it because the traditional family structure is wide open there. And I think that's cool. Totally. It really, it really works well. And, and I, I know it's on my kids list next. Cause I said, okay. cause they're reading they they read audiobooks like I do and they're, they're going through this and, and I said, okay, your next one is flood city. I, it's already in the queue. You got it. So 
They're, Did they're they excited. Have the audiobook? Uh, yeah, I actually, I listen to the audiobook as well, but they, they, they listen oh, to audiobooks cool. in the evening with my wife. They sit around and like draw while they listen to audiobooks. So it's my, my youngest, my youngest isn't as comfortable with reading novels. My, my oldest, uh, she's, she'll be 12 next week or this weekend. And she, oh, wow. she's been reading chunky novels for years and years and years. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's really so, cool. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's the, if you guys read the certain point of view, the recent one, the Empire Strikes Back one, she's the writer. Mm-hmm. The woman who did the audiobook is the writer who did the L3 story. Oh, okay. Oh, no. Ah, amazing. It's all connected. That L3 story is good. <laughs> yeah, isn't it a good story? Yeah. That is, yeah. yeah. She killed it. So, Flood City, you wrote 10 years ago. So, what took it so long? Was it just not ready <laughs> when you first wrote it? Was it publishing? Were you like, they didn't know what to do with it? It was publishing, man. It was all publishing. I like, you know, this is, in the, this is during the period when I'm trying to sell Shadow Shaper, um, getting rejected 40 times on that, mostly from agents. Um and then that finally got picked up. And then shortly after that, I sold Half Resurrection Blues. I got an agent. Um, Half Resurrection Blues came out before Shadow Shaper, just because adult publishing usually moves faster than children's publishing. They both came out in 2015. I still couldn't sell Flood City. Still couldn't sell Flood City. <laughs> Half Resurrection Blues sold as a three-book deal, and it was a book a year. Um, Shadow Shaper sold as a one-book deal. And then later, when they realized they had a hit, they, they turned it into a three-book deal. So I had my hands full, but I was still trying to sell freaking Flood City the whole time. And uh, I think at one point I chopped it up and tried to sell it as like smaller books and installments, mm-hmm. and that didn't work. And I don't know, man. I finally sold it to Scholastic. I don't know. I don't know why that all happened that way. <laughs> Publishing is super weird. But I sold it. And then right before, not right before, but about a year before it was scheduled to come out, um, I sent them a proposal for a book about kids riding dinosaurs in the Civil War. Dr. Hill Squad. And (laughs) everyone was so excited about that. They were like, why don't we buy this as a trilogy and push Flood City to later? And I was like, sure. Because I was excited about it too. Because I love that series. Dr. Hill Squad is one of my favorite series to write. And um, so that's what happened. And and here we are 10 years later. Well, I'm glad it's out there now. It's it's a great book. Me too. Thank um, you. Folks got definitely got to check it out. So, Will, we're about at our hour mark. So do you want to uh, wrap it up? Yep. Yeah, but that's sure, essentially I'll what I'm up. saying to be cognizant of, yeah, of Daniel's this, time here. This is what he's like the time. He's this like is the time lord. Literally my job, um, Daniel. No, <laughs> no I know. Um, all right. So I guess we'll just go to our last question. I could keep sure. asking you questions all day. But um, our last question is, you know, what? What keeps you writing? Like, what just keeps you writing? Uh, the, the sheer fact of loving it is the most important part, I think. I, lo- I really just love it, you know. Um, it's that, and then it's also just that stories keep happening inside me, and I got to do something with them, otherwise I will die. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be too dramatic, mm-hmm. but um, that is kind of what happens. Like, they, they can take different forms and it's not always that the story strictly needs to be in one form or another. Um, there's been stories that I've transferred into multiple forms to see which one works. And I think all of them work, but it sometimes it just depends on what the industry wants or is willing to work with. For me, um, I have something I'm, I think I'm announcing tomorrow finally that I, that started as a multimedia, like interactive novel type project in my head. And cause I was talking to someone about that, and that didn't work out and I turned it into a comic book proposal and that didn't work out. And now it's a young adult novel, um, which did work out. And, I, and I'm, oh no, and at first it was a middle grade novel 
And these are all just proposal <laughs> stage, so like a chapter or two tops. Um, but it really, and this is over like seven or eight years, I think, of just like being, like, oh, this is what it's going to be. And then, and I literally like the final project was grabbing one thing, was taking that, and then grabbing something else entirely and smashing them together into this weird um, Frankenstein. And and then and then it became like I said a, a YA. Uh, which is so wild, but it, but that's the, you know, that's the form that it, I love it. And, and it, and it transformed so massively in that process. And it's really exciting. That's not to say it wouldn't have been something cool, you know, in any of those other forms. It's just, that's the journey that I went on. And if nothing else, you have to be fluid in this industry to kind of keep it moving. Um, you know, you can't afford to be too precious. And it's like, you have to hold in the balance, like, you have to love the work you're doing and the and the story that you're telling and honor it and respect it and follow it where it's taking you, but you also can't be precious about it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. You also have to be able to move. And I think there is a way to do that. I think stories are inherently fluid and they constantly move themselves, you know, and changes and grow. Um, and you have to be able to do that too as a storyteller, both because of the industry and because stories like that. So it is, it's out of love. It really comes back to love. Um, and I love to learn. And I love to like know that like I'm improving my craft every time I start a story and every time I finish a story that the the process, the journey of writing a book or, or any project that I write, you know, makes me a better person, a better spirit, a better writer, better craftsperson. Um, it grows me just as it grows itself. And that's just like an incredibly um, rewarding process. And, and um, I find it very spiritually invigorating and it's just who I am. Awesome. Uh, so we, we obviously can't thank you enough for joining us today. Well, the last thing I normally ask our guests um, real quick, because for the show notes and if people want to find your new stuff coming out or connect with you on social media or anything like that, you did mention something that might be announced tomorrow. I don't know if there's any upcoming projects you want to talk about right now, since this is going to come out in a couple of days. Um, and oh, then, yeah, and, right. and then, and then how folks can connect with you on social media. So upcoming projects and, um, any ways they can get a hold of you online? Cool. Well, since it's Friday today now. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Friday. We've actually already announced this project. I can actually <laughs> talk about it. So that's pretty cool. Um, but first, I'm going to do the rundown before I forget. Okay. My website is danieljoseolder.net. Um, on that website, you can find all my books. You can find also uh, online classes that I have posted, uh, both on Skillshare, which is a really cool video program, um, video you know, classes that have videos of me (laughs) teaching. Um, There's two classes on there that have um, been really successful and people have really enjoyed. And then there's a new platform up called Knowable that's like an audiobook version. And that has a similar class about storytelling fundamentals. All that is linked on my website under classes, uh, danielhoseolder.net. There's also a blog on there from my years as a paramedic. And that kind of goes through the whole wild journey of me oh, being wow. a medic which is kind of how i learned to write so that's a whole other story um on twitter i'm at dj older i talk a lot of trash on <laughs> instagram i'm uh at daniel jose one i mostly just repost my tiktoks at tiktok <laughs> i'm uh at daniel jose older tiktok is my only um g-rated social media platform so you can send the kids to my TikTok. Okay. Um, and I, I make an effort not to swear there, unlike everywhere else. <laughs> so that's the that's the main thing. Um, upcoming, uh, Flood City just came out two weeks ago um, from Scholastic. That is a middle grade novel. My next book is also a middle grade novel. It's called Race to Crash Point Tower. It is a High Republic adventure. 
Um, in the meantime, you can read The High Republic Adventures, which is an ongoing monthly series from IDW. And in fact, if you're planning to pick up the middle grade, a good place to start is with the comics because Lula and Zine are both um, prominent characters in the middle grade, which awesome. is cool. Yeah. And, and then, well, yeah, we'll get to that later. But um, <laughs> anyway, so the project that we exci- excitedly announced yesterday is um, a book called Ballad and Dagger that is my first young adult since Shadow Shaper, since closing out the Shadow Shaper cipher. Um, it's an urban fantasy. It's, I haven't figured out the way to express it quickly because it's super complicated, but it's, <laughs> a, it's like this teenage pianist in Brooklyn and he's from an island that sank 15 years ago that was like a secret hideaway for pirates and Sephardic Jews and Santeros uh, in the Caribbean. And they had their own kind of uh, religious practices spring up with their own gods who are now starting to kind of like show up around Brooklyn and there's riots in the streets and murders and things. And it's like really, really weird and really fun. So sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's like literally the first time I've talked about it publicly, except for a really quick uh, mention of it on a panel months ago that didn't really count so <laughs> this is kind of an exclusive in a weird way all right well if, it, it, let us know if for some reason it doesn't get announced tomorrow but uh, oh, you know thank you i will because yeah you never know actually so I'm, like i said we we, we i'll post this on friday so if something changes between now and then you gotta let yeah, us know i'm meaning to follow up with my publicist <laughs> and find out if it's actually going to be posted or not anyway so let me dm him right now but yeah i'll let you guys know but we we really when appreciate it, you when is it scheduled to come out yeah uh, next when year. is it actually scheduled Next year. Okay, yeah, cool. Comes out next year. Awesome. Yes. Well, again, oh, sorry, Marshall, I interrupted. No, you're fine. Thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you. Um, I love your books. I've I've read the uh, Resurrection Blues stuff, and and oh, Flood City's great, and oh. you know, and so you know, we, we follow you, and we'd love to have you back on another time sometime. You know? Sure, man. Sure. Thanks, right. guys. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Enjoy the rest right. of your day, Daniel. Yeah. Good to see you. Will. Take All care, right. everybody. Yeah. Me too. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. You can find us at Just Keep writing.org follow us on facebook twitter instagram and youtube feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias and please jump in our just keep writing discord channel links to all of that is in the show notes lastly please support our show by going to patreon.com slash just keep writing we offer daily writing prompts early access to podcast episodes and much more thanks for listening and just keep writing